0: Welcome. Okay. This is Dr. Michio Kaku, Professor of Theoretical Physics at the City College and the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, and this is Exploration. Every week on Exploration, we discuss the fascinating world of science. First of all, let me wish all of you a great new year for 2022. Let's hope that 2022 is better than last year, 2021, which, uh, which was a real disaster, especially with the Delta virus causing so much havoc, death, and destruction. Well, when we summarize the news, of course, we'll have to talk about yet another virus, which is, which is now paralyzing large areas of the economy. We realize that the Omicron virus is much more contagious than the Delta. In fact, 95%... An astonishing 95% of new infections in the United States is from Omicron. Even though around Thanksgiving time, Omicron was nothing but a blip on a radar screen. And yet now it dominates the news. So we'll talk about the good news and the bad news concerning this latest pandemic. And then we'll say a few things about fusion. Fusion in China. The Chinese have made an announcement that their reactor... Uh, has exceeded their expectations. They've been able to heat gas five times hotter than the inside of the Sun. And they've been able to hold together this fusion process for a record of 17 minutes. What does that mean? Will one day we we'll be able to have fusion power light up our cities. And then the Webb Space Telescope. The launch was a success. It's out there in outer space. And it's now successfully unfurled, so we will soon have pictures from the universe. And then we'll say a few things about a potential breakthrough concerning Alzheimer's disease, which some scientists believe is the disease of the century. Well, it turns out that scientists now believe that there's not one but two types of the amyloid protein which gums up the brain, and one day we may be able to find a way to clean out the bad amyloid protein, leaving the brain in pristine form. Well, that's the hope anyway. Well, let's just jump right into some of the top stories of the past week. The lead story today is the Omicron virus. Just when we thought around Thanksgiving time that we had turned the corner, just when we thought we would be able to throw away the masks, just when we thought we were going to have a normal life for the first time in in a long while, we were hit, wham, by a virus which is even more infectious than Delta, the Omicron virus. It comes from South Africa, and that's also a warning because there's a large fraction of the world's population that does not have the vaccine, and as a consequence, they are a reservoir, a proving ground, for new mutations, which could then spread around the world. So it means, therefore, that we have to help nations that don't have the resources to get vaccinated, or else they will become a reservoir for mutations for the next round of the coronavirus, God forbid. So let's hope we learn something from this episode. Well, as I mentioned around Thanksgiving time, it was nothing but a blip on the radar screen But the indications were that it is many times more infectious than the Delta, and sure enough, within a matter of just a month, it overtook Delta and is now the dominant strain of the coronavirus in the United States and elsewhere. So, what is the good news and what is the bad news? Well, first of all, the bad news, especially for those of you who are not vaccinated. Here's a lesson. Get vaccinated. Get the booster shot. Because even though the Omicron virus can go right through two vaccinations and even break through those individuals that have the booster shot, it will reduce the severity of the symptoms. So you don't necessarily have to be hospitalized. However, if you are unvaccinated, you are sitting ducks. You are sitting ducks both for the Delta virus and the Omicron virus. And in fact, some people get both the Delta and the Omicron viruses. And so here is a word to the wise. If you haven't already, get the vaccination process rolling and get a booster shot. However, let's face it. This new virus is a mutant. As a consequence, it can go right through two vaccinations, but it seems to be stopped for the most part By the booster shot. Not always, but the people who do get the virus even after getting the booster shot are have a much lesser version of it, less severe than normal. In fact, many people think that it's like a cold or the flu. Some people think that the numbers of people infected by the Omicron virus are actually much higher than we're led to believe, because most people who get it probably think it's just an ordinary cold. Because you don't have these strange symptoms that are typify typify the delta, for example, the loss of the sense of smell, you don't find that with the omicron. Also, the omicron does not necessarily have a dry cough. In fact, the symptoms of the omicron virus are almost indistinguishable from that of an ordinary cold, and that probably also diminishes the number of people reporting that they are, in fact, infected. So what are the good news and the bad news? The bad news is that if you are unvaccinated, you are a sitting duck because it is much more contagious than the Delta and could bring you down. That is, it could cause death and destruction in its wake. However, if you are vaccinated and you've had the booster booster shot, that does not mean you're Superman and invulnerable. You can still get it, But the chances are it's going to be much milder than normal. Now, what's the silver lining to all of this? Because, well, back in Thanksgiving time, we thought we had turned the corner. We we thought that we were approaching herd immunity and we could put the virus behind us. Boy, were we wrong. However, there's a new theory out there. Uh, Scientists are still mulling over this new theory. But this new theory looks at it from the point of view of the virus. Let's say you are a virus. Where is your goals? First of all, you want to be as infectious as possible. You want to have as many mutations to spread your genes as widely as possible. That's the first imperative. However, once the population starts to approach herd immunity, you don't necessarily want to kill that many people. You want to have victims in which to spread. And therefore, the symptoms become milder. So in other words, as time goes by, each generation of mutations will be more infectious than the previous generation, but less lethal. So this Omicron virus seems to fit the bill. However, this is just a theory. If the theory is true, It may mean that we're going to have another wave in the future, which is even more infectious, believe it or not, than this virus, but is indistinguishable from the flu, and therefore we will have to live with it. In other words, we will never really attain herd immunity. The theory goes that perhaps we will always, we will always have this coronavirus with us, except with each generation they're not going to be as, as, as lethal as the previous generation, or else they won't have any hosts to infect. Well, of course, that's just a theory, but it's something to think about, and that is that maybe the coronavirus will be part of our daily life. In the same way, for example, that the flu is. The flu also mutates. You also have to get a new flu shot, every year. And some people think that the 1918 Spanish flu virus that killed more people than World War II is an example. In other words, we really didn't conquer the flu virus of 1918, the Spanish flu virus. Basically, it mutated. It mutated to become more infectious, but less lethal, like the coronavirus. So if this theory is true, and of course, not everyone believes in this theory, But if this theory turns out to be true, then eventually it could wind up as just another flu virus. Well, let's hope so. But of course, as I mentioned before, there's a lesson here, and that is don't be a sitting duck. That is, get vaccinated, get the booster, even if it does not give you 100% um, invulnerability against the Omicron virus. Because, well, yeah, there are side effects. They're minor, but there are side effects. But compare the two side effects. The side effects of vaccination, slight discomfort, maybe a little bit of nausea, not much to to write home about. That's one of the drawbacks, side effects of the vaccination process. But what about the side effects of the virus itself? If you are unvaccinated, chances are you're going to up your probability of dying of the illness. And I've had friends I've had acquaintances that died because of the virus. Unfortunately, they died before vaccines were made available. But now that vaccines and boosters are made available, even if they don't completely stop the Omicron, they will prevent you from winding up on a hospital bed with a ventilator down your throat. Also in the news, news from China. The Chinese are independently looking at their version of a fusion reactor for obvious reasons. The nation that attains fusion would have, in in some sense, an infinite source of energy, the energy of the stars. Why does the sun shine? The sun shines because of all the hydrogen gas that's heated up to tens of millions of degrees, enough to fuse the hydrogen to form helium, which releases vast amounts of energy, almost for free. Think about that. Unlimited energy for free. In fact, the source of hydrogen that we would use on the Earth could come from seawater. Seawater contains H2O. The H of H2O could be the fuel of the future. Now, the benefits of fusion are there to see for everyone. Unlimited energy... Unlimited source of energy because, of course, it comes through seawater. Almost no nuclear waste. There's some nuclear waste in the form of radiated steel, but nothing like in a commercial plant. And you don't have meltdowns. You have meltdowns in a conventional reactor because the leftover fission products keep on generating heat even after the accident stops. That's what drives the meltdown, excess heat coming from the fissioning of uranium. But fusion reactors have no uranium. They have no nuclear waste on the scale of a fission plant. So that's another plus. So what are the minuses? Well, the biggest minus is that it doesn't exist. It's still a dream. However, the Chinese made an announcement. And that is they were able to obtain gas inside their reactor, which is five times hotter than the inside of the sun. And even more important, they held it together for 17 minutes. Now that is a world's record. In order to have fusion, you have to attain what is called Lawson's Criterion. You have to be able to heat gas for a certain temperature with a certain density for a certain amount of time. Three things that you have to attain to get Lawson's Criterion, which would allow you to have controlled fusion. Time is the bottleneck. It turns out that most reactors can only heat gas stably for just a few seconds to a few minutes. So 17 minutes is a breakthrough. If we can keep the fusion process going indefinitely, that would be world-breaking news. The nation that attains that may be the nation that reaps the reward of unlimited energy, perhaps for free. Now, we should also point out that the Europeans are no slouch. The Europeans, in conjunction with the United States, Japan, Korea, Russia, have built their version of a fusion reactor. It is called the ITER, based in southern France, costing uh, over $10 billion. And this reactor is the most advanced reactor that we have. Why don't we say lots of good things about the ITER? Because it doesn't exist yet. It hasn't been turned on. In fact, it'll be turned on around 2025. So watch for it. Three years from now, they're going to turn the switch on the most powerful fusion reactor ever conceived of by scientists. And as the years go by, if it works, we will hope to commercialize it by mid-century. So in other words, we're not going to have it soon to fight off global warming, the energy crisis, but by mid-century, it could be a source of unlimited power that would give us energy for free. Now, of course, solar and wind power, we have to keep their fires burning, but my point of view is that we should explore all possibilities until, of course, we can rule one of them out. Also, news from outer space. The Webb Space Telescope, after so much anticipation, so much hoopla, and quite frankly, so many delays, is finally up in outer space and it has successfully unfurled its telescopic lenses. And pretty soon, we should see beautiful infrared photographs from the universe. First of all, The Hubble Space Telescope is old, and the new one is seven times more powerful than the Hubble. Also, the Hubble Space Telescope can see ultraviolet and visible radiation, but cannot see infrared that well. That's where the Webb Space Telescope comes in. Heat radiation generates infrared radiation, and the Hubble Space Telescope can detect it, which would hopefully allow it to peer directly into the heart of black holes and neutron stars, and we even hope that it is powerful enough to photograph planets circulating around other stars. Now, isn't that neat? This was once thought to be science fiction, the fact that one day we would be able to photograph a planet going around a star other than our sun. Amazing! So this is a dream come true. Astronomers are very anxious to get the latest photographs. Also, if you are into stellar evolution, that is the evolution of stars, you want to be able to penetrate what is called the Dark Ages. The Big Bang, for example, took place about 13.8 billion years ago. And for the first billion years, or fraction of a billion years, The universe was pretty dark. Stars did not yet light up the universe. These are called the Dark Ages. And we know very little about the Dark Ages. We know a lot about the present-day era, the stellariferous era, when the night sky is full of stars. But back then, the night sky was black. Black. Because the stars had not yet ignited with fusion. Well, that's where the Webb Space Telescope comes in. It is designed to look directly into the heart of black holes, neutron stars, and penetrate the dark ages. And so that's a hope that the Webb Space Telescope will open up yet more vistas for a scientific investigation. So the Hubble Space Telescope has already gone down in history as one of the most productive instruments of science, dollar for dollar. In fact, you can count, count the number of scientific papers that have emerged because of the Hubble Space Telescope, and it is staggering. A good chunk of space research comes directly from Hubble. And now the web could dethrone the Hubble Space Telescope, giving us yet more information about the nature of the universe. That is really good news. And as I mentioned, the Webb Space Telescope was launched successfully around Christmas time last year. It is now in position, and we hope to get pictures of it very soon. Also, the last time I was on exploration talking about the news in science, I mentioned a new breakthrough, a potential breakthrough in Alzheimer's research. As we mentioned before, Alzheimer's could be the disease of the century in the sense that a huge fraction of the world's population at some point in their life could come down with Alzheimer's disease. It is incurable. It eventually kills you. But before it kills you, it robs you of your most precious thing, your mind, your memories, everything that makes you what you are who you are, all of that is robbed by Alzheimer's disease. And as I mentioned, my mother died of Alzheimer's disease, and it was tragic to watch her slowly, slowly degenerate. At one point, it was nothing but a lost memory here or there. Eventually, hallucinations, and in fact, memories, memories of childhood begin to haunt you. You begin to forget things that happened just a few minutes ago, but you can begin to remember things from your childhood, long-term memories, and eventually they don't recognize you. You can stare into their eyes and realize that they don't recognize your face or who you are. Eventually, they don't even know who they are themselves, and they wind up in a stupor. It is a horrible way to die, robbing you Of your very humanity. But what is Alzheimer's? Well, autopsy reports show that people with Alzheimer's have a brain with a sticky protein coat, an amyloid coat called amyloid protein. But the question is, is that a cause of Alzheimer's or is that a result of Alzheimer's? Well, there's a debate going back and forth about the two. However, there's a new result. You see, Proteins, like amyloid, are very complicated objects consisting of long strings of amino acids. These are strings. They can wind up clockwise or wind up counterclockwise. So many protein molecules have at least two versions, a left-handed version and a right-handed version of amino acids. There are 20 amino acids out of which we can create the proteins that make up our body. Well, it turns out, scientists now believe that one version of the amyloid protein that curls in the right direction, that's the good amyloid. The amyloid that really keeps you healthy and alert. The other one that curls the wrong way, that's the dangerous one. That's responsible for Alzheimer's disease. Now, why do we believe that theory? Because there are people that die... Uh, and we analyze their brains, and we find that their brain is full of amyloid, but their brain was crystal clear when they were alive. So there's not a one-to-one correspondence between this gummy amyloid protein and having Alzheimer's. If it was one-to-one, then we might believe that amyloid protein caused Alzheimer's, but it's not one-to-one. There are, in fact, people who die and yet they die with a clear brain but still they have amyloid proteins coming up their brain. This could solve the mystery. It could solve the mystery because what it means is that the people who die with amyloid protein in their brain but are still alert, these are the ones that have the good amyloid, the amyloid that does what it's supposed to do in the brain. And they don't have that much of the dangerous version. Now, this could be a game changer because it changes our orientation toward whether amyloid proteins are good or bad. Now we realize what the answer is. It's not a question of good and bad amyloid. It's a question that there's two of them. There's both of them. And the question now is, can you clean out the brain of one amyloid leaving the other amyloid intact. That could be, if this theory is true, and of course it's not clear whether this theory has been proven by other groups, but if this theory is true, it means we now have a target, a target which could give us a cure for Alzheimer's disease. So let me give you an example. It turns out that the brain clears out a lot of the amyloids after about 48 hours, And therefore, if you can accelerate that, if you can accelerate the cleaning out process, perhaps you can lessen the effect of the bad protein. Well, there are two ways that have been documented uh, during which the brain helps to clean out some of the amyloid. First is exercise. Yes, you got it. Exercise. Exercise seems to be involved in lots of activities, including cleaning out The amyloid proteins of the brain, especially in those people who are beginning to suffer from Alzheimer's disease. But there's a second one, a second way to clean out the amyloid protein, and that is by fasting. That's right. When you fast, the brain cleans out and burns up the amyloid proteins of the body. So what does that mean for us? Well, don't jump on a fast just because you hear this news report. All of this, of course, still has to be proven by other groups. You have to go through many subjects to make sure that this is, in fact, the right way to do it. And you have to make sure it's been tested. So far, we have no way of testing these things. But exercise, well, that's a surefire hit. Exercise gets the blood going. But not only that, exercise, we think, could accelerate the cleaning out of the amyloid proteins of the body. And that's good news. That's good news because, of course, we're talking about cleaning out amyloid proteins that are misshapen, amyloid proteins that fold the wrong way. Now, let me explain. If you ever see what a protein molecule looks like, it looks like, well, tree tree lamps uh, at Christmas time. It's, It's a line that contains a whole bunch of jumbles of clusters, But its key, the key to its function is its shape. Shape determines function of a protein molecule. Let me give you an example. When you look at the coronavirus, you see spikes. You've all seen that famous picture of the coronavirus. Spikes coming out of the coronavirus like the corona of the sun. In fact, that's where the name comes from. And what do these spikes do? They're like keys keys that then attach themselves to a docking site on your lung cells. And just like a key, it opens up the lock that protects your lung cells. Because the lock can be open, that means that the virus can inject, inject through the opening its DNA so that it can reproduce and eventually kill the cell But in the process, create many hundreds of copies of itself. And that's how we get sick. So in other words, shape determines function. So when you look at a protein molecule, you say to yourself, my God, what a mess. How can nature do anything with this molecule that looks like like a, a jumble of Christmas lights? Well, the answer is shape determines function. And so in this situation, the reason why the coronavirus is such a big killer is because the spikes on the surface of the coronavirus act like keys, keys that allow them to gain entrance to the inside of your cells and potentially kill you in the process. Well, the same thing with Alzheimer's. When something twists the wrong way, its function disappears. Is unable to carry out its functions, and as a consequence, the protein becomes useless, or in this situation, it becomes dangerous. So here is a new target for research, the amyloid protein which curls the wrong way. Well, that's it for the first part of exploration. In the second part of exploration, we're going to continue our discussion of outer space by dedicating our comments to the memory of Henrietta Leavitt, the woman astronomer who helped us to measure the universe. So stay tuned for the second half of exploration. Welcome. Once again, this is Dr. Michio Kaku, Professor of Theoretical Physics, and this is the second half of Exploration. In the second half of Exploration, we're going to talk about the legacy of an unsung hero of astronomy, Henrietta Leavitt. In fact, it's scandalous that this woman has been pretty much ignored in the annals of astronomy, even though she helped to measure the universe itself. You know, back in the 1920s, astronomers asked the question, how big is the universe anyway? Well, they thought that the Milky Way galaxy was the universe. Scientists back then thought that the Milky Way galaxy would be perhaps 100,000 light years across. But that's about it. That's the size of the universe. But you see, Edwin Hubble wanted to measure the distance to the other galaxies or spots of light in the night sky. What were these nebulas that tantalize astronomers? Well, here's the problem. If you have a light source that is very dim but very close to you, it has an image which is identical to a light source which is very far away from you and very bright. So in other words, how do you tell the distance to the stars? Well, you need a standard candle a standard candle that is the same everywhere in the universe by which you can calibrate how far a star is. And that's what Henrietta Leavitt did. Henrietta Leavitt, by looking at what are called Cepheid variables, was able to come up with a formula that allowed scientists to have a standard candle to measure the distance to the stars. And Edwin Hubble then took that and was able to measure the distance to the Andromeda galaxy which was found to be millions of light years away. And that gave us, eventually, the expanding universe theory, and with Einstein, gave us the Big Bang theory. So we'll talk about the unsung legacy of a woman in science, Henrietta Leavitt, who measured the distance to the stars. But before we begin, let me just say that I have a new book. It's called The God Equation, The Quest for the Theory of Everything. You know, when I was eight years old, something happened which changed my life. I saw a picture in the newspaper, a picture of a man's desk with the unfinished manuscript opened up, and the caption said, This is the unfinished manuscript of the greatest scientist of our time. Well, I was hooked. I was fascinated. I had to know, well, who is this man and why couldn't he finish this book? What's so hard? that the greatest scientist of our time could not finish that book. Well, years later, I found out that that man was called Albert Einstein. And that book, the unfinished book, was his fabled unified field theory. It was to be an equation, perhaps no more than one inch long, that would allow us to, quote, read the mind of God. One equation that would unify all the laws of the universe into a single comprehensive theory, just like E equals mc squared, which is half an inch long, helped to unlock the secret of the energy of the stars. This equation would summarize the entire universe in a simple equation. Well, unfortunately, Einstein failed. In fact, for the past 2,000 years, going back to the Greek philosophers, scientists have asked the question, what does it all mean? Is there a simple paradigm to explain the entire universe? The universe seems so scattered, so random. Is there a cosmic mean equation, a paradigm? That's the God equation. And today, people think that we have it. We actually have, but I the foundry, one of the main branches of string theory. So anyway, this book, The God Equation, chronicles 2,000 years of investigation into the nature of matter and energy, going back to the Greeks and then to the work of Isaac Newton, and then to the work of electricity and magnetism, unraveled by Michael Faraday and James Clerk Maxwell, going up to the quantum theory, the atomic bomb, and the work of Albert Einstein. So find out about this 2,000-year quest, the greatest quest in the history of science to find the God Equation. Well, now I'd like to get on with our interview. Today we have with us George Johnson of the New York Times writing about this unsung hero of astronomy, Henrietta Leavitt, the person who helped to measure the scale of the universe. So today we can measure the scale of the universe in the result of Henrietta Leavitt, who in her own lifetime and many lifetimes after never got any credit for her great discovery. We also have the sad story of Jocelyn Bell, a woman graduate student who discovered the pulsar, but it was her thesis advisor who won the Nobel Prize in Physics for the discovery of the pulsar. And we also have the sad story of Vera Rubin. Back in the 1960s, she was one of the first people to point to the fact that the universe seems to be full of something called dark matter, but her result was ignored and only recently has the theory of dark matter been given experimental verification because of all the males who have now jumped into the field. So, our special guest today is George Johnson. He's a writer for the New York Times Science section, also author of many books, including Fire in the Mind, Strange Beauty, and his latest book is called Miss Levitt's Stars. The Untold Story of the Woman Who Discovered How to Measure the Universe. And it's one of the scandals of science that Henrietta Levitt never got the credit for measuring the universe. And then in the second half of exploration, I'm going to bring on Michael Lemenick. It's a pre-recorded interview. He is a science writer for Time magazine. And he's going to talk about the latest results from the WMAP satellite, which give us a fine-tuning of the distances to the stars and, in fact, the age of the universe itself. So once again, our first special guest today is George Johnson, author of the new book, Miss Levitt's Stars, The Untold Story of the Woman Who Discovered How to Measure the Universe. The first question for you is, how did you first get interested in science as a youth?
1: I think it must have been a combination of the, uh, the all-about books, these great children's books about different scientific subjects, and, um, and then there was the whole space program, which was just getting off to a start, and I would see these wonderful pictures in Life Magazine and the Saturday Evening Post, and sometime around the second grade, I wrote my first book, which was called The Solar System. Oh, really? It was made of, you know, from Big Chief tablet paper and my father's shirt cardboards, and crayon, <laughs> one page for each, uh-huh. each planet. But, uh, not, not a very penetrating uh, treatment, I don't think. Nothing like David Sobel's new book.
0: Now, you also mentioned that
1: uh, you read science fiction as a child. Yes, later on I did. In um, junior high school, I really you know got interested in reading uh, Isaac Asimov and Ray Bradbury and Robert Heinlein. And, and uh, that was very inspiring. I mean, there's a Swan Heinlein story that I, I mentioned in my introduction about the telepathic twins that can... Yeah, I read that, <laughs> I read that book, too, as a kid. Oh, did you? Yeah. Oh, Well, that that, that just really... The, the thing that really moved me, and that was the idea of them um, uh, landing on this planet of a distant star system and looking back and seeing the Earth as a tiny little star that's part of a, a suddenly unfamiliar sky. It's, uh, it's all distorted by this... Uh,
0: Different point of view. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when I read that science fiction story as a kid, I said that, gee, two twins communicating telepathically faster <laughs> than the speed of light? No, give me a break.
1: You, you were way ahead of me. I, I, <laughs> I bought that hook line uh, although I did know it was fiction.
0: Now, why did you decide to write a book about Henrietta Levitt, who, for the most part, is this tiny, tiny little footnote in most astronomy books, but most astronomy books wouldn't be written without her work.
1: Yeah, um, I'm partly out of a, a sense of frustration because I keep seeing these little footnotes or these kind of two two sentence glancing mentions of her work, and and I started to get this picture in my mind of this um, this woman around the turn of the century, kind of little post Victorian time, sitting up in some dark room in the Harvard Observatory and in Cambridge and poring over these star charts, and that image kind of fixed itself in my mind, and I thought I would start a book about measuring the universe with Henrietta Leavitt just kind of to get into the book, but then I just really became very curious about who this person was and what, if anything, we knew about her, and uh, I was lucky enough to find some documents with a good researcher in the Harvard archives that helped flesh out her story a little.
0: Okay, well, let's now set the stage for exactly why her discoveries are so important. Um, In ancient times, of course, uh, ancient peoples would look up at the night sky, look at the stars, and wonder, how far are they? You can't throw rocks to hit the stars. You can't (laughs) jump. Uh, Even the highest mountaintop, you can't reach the stars. So how did astronomers first begin to estimate the distance to the stars?
1: Yes, and... um they were able to estimate distances to things on Earth using triangulation, and you know, we do the same thing with modern surveying, where you you um, look at something from two different vantage points and see that it shifts slightly against the against the more distant backdrop, and you can use trigonometry to figure out how far it is. And Hipparchus, um, in ancient Greek times, did that with the moon and got a pretty good estimate of the distance, but um, The stars are so far away, even the closest star, that you could um, measure from two different parts of the Earth and you wouldn't see see any shift of the position, so you can't triangulate. So it was a big problem with the stars, tiny and close by, or enormous and very distant.
0: Now this process is called parallax, and it's also the reason why we have two eyeballs. So explain to us why we have two eyes rather than one eye, and if you injure one eye, it's quite difficult to judge distances.
1: Yes. Um, you really, if you think about your eyes as forming um, the ends of a base of a triangle, um, you're essentially triangulating unconsciously on things as you um, look outside. Like right now I'm looking out my office window at this old church across the street, and as I walk around through the window, the church you know, seems to move against the backdrop, and my brain is presumably doing some unconscious computations and giving me a sense of how far away that is. So if we were born with one eye, we would always be running into things because we didn't know how far away they were.
0: And that's also how 3D glasses work, right? Your left eye sees red, your right eye, the other eye sees blue, and your your brain puts the red and the blue together to create a three-dimensional image.
1: Yes, right, or those old stereopticons where you have the have the two postcard images that are slightly different one one for each eye and it gives you a 3D effect.
0: Mhm. Okay, so the radius of the Earth's orbit around the sun is about 93 million miles or so. Right. And so if you take a picture of the night sky in summertime and a picture of the night sky in wintertime, you've actually moved the telescope over almost 200 million miles, right? <laughs> yeah.
1: So you can imagine the—it's uh, it, like having an eye on each side of the, uh, the solar system, and and from seeing how some of the stars, the very closest ones, shift a little between um, you know every six months. Um, that was that gave um, astronomers a way to triangulate the distance to the very very nearest stars. Those just a few light years away, but most of the stars by far are so distant that you don't see any parallactic shift at all from uh, season to season.
0: Now, children often say, gee, uh, Daddy, how come the moon is following me? Everywhere (laughs) I move, the moon is following me. But that's because the moon is so far away, it has no parallax, and it gives you the optical illusion that it's always above your shoulder, right?
1: Ah, yeah, you know, I'd never actually thought about why that was, but sure, of course.
0: Now, also, the, a light beam uh, from the Earth to the Sun takes about eight minutes, mm-hmm. so the, the diameter of the Earth's orbit is about 16 minutes by light. Ah. But you just mentioned that the nearby stars are tens of light years away that are familiar to us every night, mm-hmm. and so the parallax must be very small to yeah. the faraway stars, right?
1: Yes, it was just a fraction of a, of a second of a minute of a degree. So it was a very, very delicate measurement, and something that uh, wasn't really possible until I think it was the 19th century when they really had uh, equipment good enough to make measurements that finely.
0: Mm -hmm. Now, usually when we judge distances, we use what is called a standard candle. Mm -hmm. If I have a candle that is the same everywhere in a room, and I move the candle anywhere in the room, I can judge distances because uh, the fainter the candle, the farther it is away. Right. It's the same candle. But stars are not standard candles, right?
1: Yeah, we we had no way of knowing how bright they were inherently. So, you know, again, it's the question of is it very bright and really close to us? I mean, very bright and um, really distant, or is it very dim and really close to us or somewhere in between? But, yeah, without actually... Going out there in a spaceship and measuring it up close, you know, it was a big mystery of how we'd know how bright they were, so we could calculate their distance.
0: Mm -hmm. Okay, now let's go to the 1920s, uh, where uh, when scientists had astronomers had a pretty firm idea that the Milky Way galaxy, which we see every night, uh, this swath of light cutting across the night sky that the Milky Way galaxy was, in some sense, uh, the entire universe. Uh, yeah, could you explain to us how we viewed the universe in the 1920s?
1: If that was one of the things that I really found most astonishing and that drew me into wanting to write a book about measuring the universe was to realize that as recently as 1920, it was a matter of scholarly scientific debate whether the Milky Way was the whole universe or not. And, um, and if that were true, then something... Like Andromeda, which we now know to be a neighboring galaxy, would be instead just a very small little little smudge, a little bit of uh, a little bit of stellar dust or something very very close into Earth, and that's certainly what Harlow Shapley, one of the great astronomers of the 20th century, thought.
0: And in fact, wasn't there a great debate that you mentioned in your book uh, concerning? Uh, the structure of the universe and how far the stars really are
1: yes in Washington DC at the National Academy of Sciences and Chapley took the position that um, that the Milky Way is the whole universe and that there aren't any other galaxies and uh, Heber Curtis another astronomer took the uh, opposing view that actually the Milky Way was just one of many many of what uh, Immanuel Kant had called island universes or that there are many galaxies and Andromeda was being one of them the Magellanic Clouds, being a smaller satellite galaxy. So it was a very, very heated debate, and each man really left Washington convinced that he'd won.
0: So how big was the universe to Harold Shipley? Uh In the early 1920s, he must have had an estimate as to how big the Milky Way galaxy was, and that was the universe. So how big was the universe to him?
1: Well, let's see... Um, you know, I can't really immediately recall the number from Shapley's calculations, but he used, um, um, used the standard candles that Henrietta Leavitt discovered to kind of measure out the um, Milky Way. And, um, but it was just, you know, obviously vastly smaller than the universe that we know about today.
0: Okay, well, now let's get into uh, Henrietta Leavitt's work itself. Yeah. Uh, tell us a little bit about uh, where she was born, uh, where she grew up, and how did she wind up as an astronomer at Radcliffe?
1: <laughs> yeah, it was a, a very interesting trajectory. She was uh, the daughter of a Congregationalist minister, a very very Puritan kind of upbringing in uh, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. And at some point, her family... Moved to Cambridge, Massachusetts, where her father had a church, and later out to the Midwest, to uh, first Ohio and then to uh, Wisconsin, Beloit, Wisconsin. And she followed the family there and um, went to the the family valued education, and they encouraged her to go to school. And she was in Beloit College in Wisconsin at first, and then later transferred to Radcliffe University back in Cambridge, Massachusetts. um, Partly because she had relatives there, and uh, during school she had what was really just a general liberal arts education. She had some science classes, and, uh, but mostly humanities. Toward the end of her uh, her time there, before she graduated, she took some um, astronomy classes that were taught by astronomers who just walked across the street from the Harvard University Observatory, and that's when she got hooked and. She took a volunteer position at the observatory right after school, I mean right out of school, and this led into uh, her job as what they called a computer, someone who was hired to do calculations.
0: Now, even today, uh, grad students have to support themselves, uh, either by part-time jobs or scholarships or what have you. Uh, you mentioned in your book that she came from probably an upper middle class background. So she yeah. probably didn't have to worry about a job, right? I
1: think she probably, I, I was never able to, to confirm that, but it seems clear that she must um, have been of somewhat independent means because there are these letters in which she talks about going off on cruises to Europe and things. And, uh, this was she was being paid twenty five cents an hour, which, if you put it into an inflation calculator, comes out to be about five dollars in today's terms. So,
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know, basically what you'd make working at McDonald's.
0: Okay, so um, I understand that back then, of course, they didn't have calculators, and uh, astronomers relied upon teams of women to yeah. do their calculation for them. Is that right? Yeah,
1: they tended to be women, and. Um, it was considered a, a good job to get at the time. It paid better than working in the cotton mills, and of course, for someone like like Henrietta Levitt, it was um, it was a you know somewhat intellectual occupation. She seemed to, to enjoy it, and and a computer at the Harvard observatories um, wasn't only adding up columns of numbers and doing calculations, but also studying these uh, photographic plates of the sky that had been taken at the Harvard Observatory down in Peru. So uh, it was pretty interesting work, I guess, for someone who uh, was interested in astronomy, but then also very, very tedious, very very painstaking work. And there was a certain oh, sense that it was women's work, you know, and the men would uh, make the discoveries and talk about what the stars meant and interpret the data, but the women were there to, to gather it.
0: And precisely what did she do to change the course of astronomy?
1: The um, director of the observatory, Edward Pickering, I mean, he quickly realized that she was uh, you know, very, very good at this, and uh, even uh, very overqualified. <laughs> at one point he gave her a raise to 30 cents an hour. And um, he assigned her a project of looking for variable stars in this um, haze of light called the Magellanic Clouds. Uh, This had been photographed by the Harvard Observatory in Peru because you can only see it, see the clouds in the um, southern hemisphere. They look um, somewhat like like the Milky Way except except round. Um, So Levitt was looking at these plates and asked to look for stars that varied in brightness from um, week to week or month to month and sometimes even from day to day. And uh, she'd do this by comparing a plate taken, say, in January with one taken in February of the same part of the sky, and uh, then would look for stars that had varied in brightness. So she was doing this, and she discovered just a very large number of variable stars within the Magellanic Clouds. So uh, she was curious about how, you know, what their periods of... Um, pulsation were so she made a list and at some point she noticed that there was a correlation so that the, um, the dimmer a star was in the Magellanic Cloud the dimmer a variable star was in the Magellanic Cloud um, the more rapidly it blinked and vice versa and she drew a little graph and showed that there was a definite relationship between the star's rhythm of pulsation and its dimness or brightness.
0: And how could that be used to then uh, establish a standard candle that could be used throughout the universe?
1: Well, essentially, since all these stars were in the Magellanic Cloud, she knew they were roughly the same distance from Earth. So um, it essentially meant that uh, you could measure the rhythm of the pulsation, and from that you could derive the inherent brightness. It would sort of be like... um, if an international commission had decreed that uh, a that 50-watt light bulbs blink at a certain rhythm and that 100-watt light bulbs blink at a different rhythm and that there was an ag- exact relationship um, between the uh, dimness and brightness. And then if you looked out your window out onto the town, you could tell by how uh, fast a bulb was blinking, how bright it was. And once you knew how bright it really was, you could uh, calculate how far away it was using the inverse square the inverse square law.
0: Okay, so what astronomers did was they looked at a variable star, calculated how fast it was blinking. That would then tell you how dim or bright it was, and since these are standard candles, that would tell you the distance to the star. Exactly, thing.
1: and and they um, they they f- very quickly found that there were. Um, variable stars within the Milky Way and uh, they were able to use this to get, you know, kind of a sense of, uh, you know, they had to calibrate the scale, in other words, because they, they could say that, uh, well, here's a variable star blinking, you know, at this rate, so it must be uh, uh, so many, you know, times further away than that the second star that's blinking at another rate, but it was all relative distances at that point.
0: So she was aware, therefore, of the importance of her discovery, right? I mean, Yes,
1: it was clear, and that's one thing that was has kind of been controversial, at least from some things you'd read. You'd almost think that she had just gathered the data and that Edward Pickering or someone had figured out the relationship. But if you really look closely at her paper, um, it, it's just obvious that uh, she knew exactly what she'd found and, and why it was important.
0: So she published her results, so you could then infer from the publication exactly what she knew and what she didn't
1: know, right? Yes, right. And, you know, there's always a question of, you know, her being being uh, an assistant at a computer and working for Pickering. There's a question of how much input he had into the papers, but it was, you know, right there with her name on it, and that's what counts.
0: Uh-huh. So in some reports I've seen, uh, they sort of treat her as just a computer uh, yeah. that just punches out the numbers, but she didn't know what the numbers meant. But you're saying that she actually did know oh, yeah. Yeah, that she had it, discovered it, a standard candle.
1: Yeah, there's one part. I mean, her papers are, are very... She was a very reserved, quiet woman, and her papers reflect that. And, and toward the end of one of them, she um, she basically mentioned that this would you know, be a means of, uh, of uh, distance measurement. And and, and she says it in such a way that, uh, you know, it just comes out very clearly, like, like aha, you can see the light bulb going off in her head.
0: So, wasn't this heralded as a big discovery?
1: Well, um, kind of, you'd think. <laughs> um, within astronomy, people quickly realized it was, was important, and uh, an astronomer named uh, Ejnar Hertzsprung used, uh, used Henrietta Leavitt's stars to to, to uh, measure some distances within the Milky Way and, and first started calibrating the yardstick. And then Harlow Shapley, um, who, who went on to become the head of Har- Harvard Observatory, used um, Levitt Standard candles to really map out the Milky Way and, uh, and just show how great it was. Um, but the, the real big breakthrough came when another astronomer, Edwin Hubble, found um, some of these... Uh, Cepheid variables are called, Levitt stars in the Andromeda Nebula. And once he knew that he had, uh, had these standard candles there, he could measure how far Andromeda was and show that it was not, as Shapley believed, this little smudge close by, but that it was indeed a huge galaxy. I'm
0: afraid that's it for exploration. Once again our special guest today was George Johnson writing about the pioneering work of a woman in science, Henrietta Levin, the one who taught us how to measure the heavens. And this is Dr. Michio Kaku. Go to my website, mkaku.org, m k a k u.org, find out about my latest book. It's called The God Equation: The Quest for the Theory of Everything. It's about the greatest search in the history of science, a 2000 year quest to find one equation which summarizes all the laws of the universe. So go to my website, mkaku.org, mkaku.org. I've written four New York Times bestsellers and I have four and a half million fans on Facebook. Good day.